0: Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos Espinal. Today, we have Jackson Gabbard, Software Engineer and Tech Lead at Facebook, or recently Software Engineer and Tech Lead at Facebook. Uh, I asked him to give me the title to his own talk, and he said, this is about the wisdom you'd ignore anyway. And with his background, what I'd love to explore is how it is that we are faced with all this great advice about building a, a team and product, and we ignore it anyway and the reasons why that is. But let's start off the way we usually do, which is your background. Uh, I understand you studied English. That's correct, yeah. I was, uh, I was a liberal arts major with a,
1: a sort of a bent towards becoming a school teacher.
0: And so, I mean, like knowing where you are now, how did, how did that change for you?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I was always sort of technical. I was sort of always drawn towards uh, hard problems that were, were technical in nature. And then in university... Uh, The liberal arts education just wasn't very, like, strenuous, and so I had a friend who was a math major, and we kind of got together and talked about technical stuff, and one day he presented me with the array data structure, and I just thought, well, this is it. I I have learned something that I can't unlearn, and I can never come back from this. So before I finished university, I was actually paying for my English degree by being a software engineer at a – or, well, a software developer at a a small startup.
0: So was this uh, the Orton Group? Was this the first first place you moved? Walk us through your experience there.
1: Ah, oh, so that experience was I, I got motivated because I, I was solving problems that I recognized as being like real sort of commercial problems. And I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe I'm good enough now to like go work for free at a place just to get the experience. So I, I literally sort of hit up Google and typed in, you know, Nashville web design companies because that's what I thought it was. I thought writing code was being a web designer. It was very green at the time. And the Horton Group came up and I emailed them and said, hey, I would love to come and work for free. And they said, sure, yeah, why not? Come work for free. And uh, but by the end of the first, I think it was the first day or second day, they had hired me. They said, we'll, we'll give you money to do what you do. So I guess I had more skills than I realized.
0: Excellent. And what were those things that you did like, that, that sort of shaped you going forward?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing was just being drawn to whatever I didn't know well and like being willing to do however much work it took to overcome what I didn't know. And as soon as I knew that I didn't know something, I took it as my personal path forward to learn it. So for instance... I was like writing code that didn't really have control flow in it because I didn't really know what if statements were or for loops were. And so that was one of my first challenges. It's like, okay, I got to figure out how to do the thing where you do the thing over and over again, but like you got to know when to stop, you know? And later on I learned, oh, that's just like control flow, like basic programming stuff. Uh, And, you know, exactly this approach through, you know, running a a project with a team of two or three people through writing code for a website where, you know, you, you start to hit the boundary of like, my code is too complex to keep track of as one big file. What do you do then? Well, oh, I guess there's, there's got to be something to break code down into smaller chunks. I wonder how that works. You know, mm. each time I hit the, the boundary of my knowledge, I just kept pushing forward. And that led me into design patterns and that led me into eventually into algorithms. And that's probably when I became what most people would think of as like a competent coder. Mm. And How long were you there? Horton Group, I was there for, I think, almost two years. And then got poached away by a better startup in uh, in the same area.
0: Zoe. Zoe, yeah. To walk us through the culture there.
1: Oh man, Zoe was uh, was your classic wannabe Silicon Valley company. You know the uh, the COO and the CTO were just relentlessly reading TechCrunch and following all of the sort of the the A-list companies and trying to do what they do, but the leadership was just totally not there. And I was too naive and green to know, you know, I, I thought they're giving me a great salary. I'm going to work my ass off and whatever. But over time I get to see, oh, this is what happens when you don't really know how to build a company and you're just sort of copying it superficially, like one layer down, everything is wrong. And so this company was working on vaporware for more than a year and shipped nothing. And eventually there was like a coup and then the coup got squelched and then I came to work one day and half the company was gone. And I didn't last much longer than that myself. I just I left my computer and my key on my desk and left one day and didn't come back because I knew there was there was no
0: chance. And then within six months, the company was gone. So walk us through what went wrong there. So you, you've given us the high level, which is that they prioritized maybe optics over substance. But let's actually break that down exactly with your, the hindsight, 2020 20 hindsight you have today of what was that culture like what was it failing at what was the leadership failing at was it in structure was it in how you know a lot of the terminology we use today about how to organizing teams was it that i
1: think it was it was both of those things there were two fatal flaws i think one was the ceo was a salesman and not a product visionary and nobody had the guts to tell him that he could he could pitch the product super well he could get uh, funding pretty well but he didn't know what he was building and nobody knew what he was building. There was this sort of tribal acceptance that nobody's going to talk about this. And I went right along with it, you know, I was, I was right there at my desk writing endless amounts of ASP.net and C-sharp and, you know, putting together the design team and not challenging anything. I remember the, the first time I asked the question of like, hey, how many people can our platform support in a meeting? Which should be a trivial question to ask in an engineering led organization, when I asked it. There was like this stunned silence in the room and I thought I had messed up. I thought I had crossed a boundary and might get fired over it. And I look back now and I'm like, that should have been the reddest of red flags to me. So yeah, there was definitely like insulation from the hard questions that needed to get asked and, and lack of leadership, like all the way to the very top, nobody was doing this. And the CEO didn't have enough technical wherewithal to even know what it should have been. So that was flaw one. Flaw two was they made the horrible mistake of thinking they could solve their problem with quote-unquote seasoned engineers. So one of the leadership people had a relationship with a VP of engineering at AOL, you know, shows my age, but this is a while ago. Uh, And so they poached a bunch of infrastructure engineers from AOL and just thought, okay, great, we've got infrastructure engineers. So they scaled up to 30 engineers who were used to writing like Perl to like mesh, you know, phone line router software and they brought them in to build a product that was amorphous and lacking leadership. And basically all that did was just burn the money's, investment money, as, burn the company's investment money as fast as they possibly could and
0: offer no real upside at all. Like they, they shipped nothing. What would have been the top three things you would have done were you now CEO of ZOI, but back in time?
1: Oh, wow, okay, that, I wish I could be. I, I can think immediately what I would do. The, the first thing that I would do is interrogate the product offering. What they were offering was essentially a white label <laughs> CD-ROM that you put into your drive and it will launch a console that gives you access to airline tickets and jokes and videos. And if you extrapolate from this, what you realize is like, oh, it's effectively just a branded browser. And this was like well past the internet bubble. This was like, this wasn't whenever Netscape was becoming big. This was like when AOL was already the king and people already had access to the internet. Which meant that what they were trying to offer was just way late for the market, and what they were hoping for was that big brands would buy their software, put their label on it. You know, you would get a bag of Doritos, and there would be a CD-ROM inside of it that would let you access the Doritos console. It was insane. Like this was a bad idea, and nobody was asking that hard question or interrogating that idea. And that's the first thing that I would do, which would be like, wait, why do we think this is a good idea? And I didn't have the guts to do it back then, but I definitely would now. I, if, I could do, if I could have been the CEO from the start back then, I would have not hired 30 AOL infrastructure engineers. You know, like, I think before I left, they had also hired a, a massively overpaid scrum master from Silicon Valley because they thought what they need now is agile. Agile will solve their problems. So they kept trying to throw the wrong thing at a problem they weren't trying to understand. And I would, I would have not
0: done that. Well, after that, you left and you went to Echo. Walk us through how that changed things for you. Yeah, Echo Music was a was a definitely a game changer company for me.
1: It was the it was the best company that I could possibly have worked for in Nashville, Tennessee. I didn't get a job there immediately. In fact, I interviewed there and didn't get hired. Uh, I was a good you know, sort of interactive developer, but I didn't pass their engineering interview because I didn't really know the like the vernacular of engineering. I was an English major, right? Like I don't know when how to answer some of the questions phrased the way they were phrasing them. Like if they could have spoken neutral English, I would have been like, oh, I think it's this. But whenever they threw technical terminology at me, I was, I was you know, blind, I was yeah. deaf, I didn't know what to do. But I was a good flash engineer. Like I was a qualifiably good ActionScript 2 and ActionScript 3 coder. So when they got into a pinch, when they needed help, they contracted some work out to me. And it was, uh, it was actually a pop-up MP3 player for Kanye West's first website. That was my first project for them. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, this is my chance. If I don't grab this chance and just deliver massively on it that's it. I will never get a a way into this company. And so I just, I wrote the shit out of that code. I wrote the best ActionScript code I was capable of. I had super coherent class hierarchy. The code was like documented. I had tested it. Like I gave them a gem of a reusable, you could make this for any of your artists now, MP3 player widget. And fortunately one of their ActionScript engineers was a good coder and he saw my code and he was like, whoa, you're the only contractor we've talked to who even knows what a class is. You should come in and work here. So I got hired because of that, um, which to me was great. It was a, an indication that my marketable skills were definitely greater than my interview ability because I just didn't know the, the terms. Um, what was interesting about Echo was that despite being poised to be amazing, they had Taylor Swift, they had um, Kelly Clarkson back when she was like brand new and emerging, they had all of these amazing artists. And I worked on a lot of those projects. They we did, did uh, they did Janet Jackson's website. And when the company folded, they were working on Beyonce's website. like. When I look back and think of the A-list talent that they were building stuff for, Mm. I'm like, how did they fail? How could they possibly have failed? And the honest answer is like toxic internal company culture and extremely weak relationships across the orgs such that the salespeople were giving away the boat, giving away the the ship, the house. They were just selling the offering at so low a price that the company would never make money. And in, in the two years that I was there, I watched it go from, hmm, we have to make money sometime to, oh, crap, our parent company, Ticketmaster, who, who bought us, they, uh, they're they shutting us down. They mm-hmm. showed up one day and said, you all have six weeks left.
0: It sounds to me like you've done quite a bit of work with companies that have, have sort of gone in, in bad directions and in some in some good directions. And and maybe at, the, at were you feeling jaded at this point in time about startup and startup leadership? Or, or was that something that you, you had visibility from other friends that were in other startups of like how things could go well?
1: You know, jaded is probably a a good word for it. I I knew that all of the startups that I knew about were bullshit. You know, I knew that, for instance, um, my friend uh, Dale, who was with me at Zoe and then actually came to Echo Music also. When he came to Zoe, they offered him equity and he said, don't give me the equity. I want the biggest salary you'll possibly offer me. And in retrospect, he came out ahead of all of the rest of us because he didn't take the, the, you know, the vaporware equity whoops, I wish I'd done the same, even though I was getting ridiculously overpaid based on everything I knew until that point. But I I think after Echo Music, I had gotten a taste of goodness. Like they had done a good enough job at hiring good people that even though the company culture was toxic across organizations and all of the leadership was mistrustful of all the other leadership, within each of the teams, The teams were doing good work. They were like really excelling and you had really good people around you and you could ask hard questions and get hard answers. You know, I I challenged the ActionScript sort of standard there and said, hey, why are we still running ActionScript 2.0? Like we should just learn 3.0 and write modern code. And the team did. And that was a first for me. So I thought, okay, it can't all be bad. You know, and I knew that if I found the right environment where there were more of the, the good people and less of the toxicity,
0: that that would work. It sounds to me like a recurring theme here is, is leadership and leadership and, and how that breaks down and functional teams. And, and I feel like we haven't really covered a lot of that uh, just yet. So I want to I keep on pushing there. Yeah. Give me an example of if you were a CEO of Zoe, again, once again, what, what were the things that drove that culture to be toxic in some ways, but not as toxic as the one that was at, at, uh, at Zoy. Oh. Sorry, at Echo, but not nearly as bad as Zoy.
1: So yeah, the, the thing that was better about Echo was... There was actual product vision there. The, uh, the CEO uh, was a guy called Mark Montgomery, who's still around. He's still doing uh, tech entrepreneurship.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He, um, he really knew how to build good products, and he really knew how to market them. He really knew how to connect with people who would pay for the services. They had a real product offering. If you don't have that, there's no amount of goodness inside the company that's going to pivot you into mm-hmm. profitability. You have to come along with a good idea. Mm-hmm. and They had that, and they also had that and the right market timing. They were doing the thing that everyone was trying to do, but they were winning at it. At least by external measures, they were winning at it. Um, So if I I was the CEO of it, what would I do differently? The thing that they didn't do, the thing that was missing was accountability across the leadership of teams. So for instance, the org that I was in, there was a creative director who, frankly, just wasn't being effective. And because of that, the, the org underneath him wasn't working in the right direction. And also that creative director, he needed to be, like in retrospect, I know he needed to be super tight with the leader of the quote unquote engineering team. And yet they were on different floors of this tiny house. You know, it's a house that holds 40 people and these people never talk. They don't even speak once a week. And when I look back, I think, you know, I was a, a coder. I was a real coder and I needed access to APIs that were part of the quote unquote engineering team. I asked to get access to the code base and they told me no well, my team needs it. We're building stuff on top of this infrastructure and we don't have access to the APIs. Like, all we know is what we already have seen. And literally, we can't even get the API. Like, we can't even get basic PHP documentation, which is an organizational problem. And the creative director should have been on that. He should have been the one going down and saying, okay, what do we have to do to establish a relationship where people can get the resources they need to do their jobs effectively? And he wasn't doing that. Uh, And on the flip side, the engineering lead, wasn't doing that either. He wasn't doing anything to enable the company to be successful. He was fortifying his organization against them. Hmm. And because of that, yeah, like the, the the effect was good people were doing way less than their potential work. And if I, if I could go back in time and be the CEO, that's the thing that I would have attacked most aggressively. But it
0: sounds to I me mean, like it, a lot of this is stemming from openness and transparency and communication. Like it, it's almost like if that's done the wrong way because of, of mistrust or agendas, then it creates this sort of defensive walling, which then creates this sort of further division. Is yeah. that roughly kind of how you see it play out? Absolutely. That's at least in the companies that I have seen struggle, and even at companies like
1: Facebook, I have watched when one organization becomes mistrustful of another, how that leads to immediate tensions in environments that shouldn't have tension. And yet they you know they do. And once that's there, it is really tough to come back from that. It's really tough to reestablish
0: goodwill. So let's talk about when you moved to Facebook then, you know, that's such a contrast, you know, going from these companies that are very fragile to, you know, more of a a ship, a fast moving ship. What was the first few weeks like for you coming into a company that is known for being like cutthroat in terms of developer culture and being one of the first 12 people to to open up the, the London office?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so if we go back to the start. That's 2009. That's you know, Facebook is in one big building in Palo Alto, California. There's about 350-ish engineers in the entire company. Maybe about I think 1,200 people in the company overall. But, you know, relatively small. Everyone then still thought of it as a startup that was just just starting to become something more than a startup. Um, and when I joined, I honestly I think there was a huge amount of luck. I would be it would be extreme arrogance of me to think that I got there based solely on my skills, because I definitely performed poorly in one of the interviews, like I bombed it. But I did well enough in the interviews that were focused on the things I was specifically good enough to, to buoy myself. And once I got in the company, I realized that I was actually interviewing across two teams. And if I had only interviewed with the one of those teams, I would not have gotten the job. It was only because I had exposure to the, what they called the user interface engineering team. And you know, front end was my specialty. I knew that through and through. The more hardcore sort of back end engineering, I didn't know, and within the first few weeks at Facebook, the thing that was most apparent to me was I really didn't know. Like I was not competent to work there, and it was terrifying. You know, you sort of go in and and you. For one, I realized, oh, this company is disorganized as hell internally. Like they're doing great work and they have amazing people, but like it's a mess in terms of like who do you talk to to get stuff done. I'm a new person and I need this and that. How do I do that? Oh, go talk to three people, somebody has the answer. Very sort of community, very tribal knowledge. Nobody really knows the process. But also, I just sucked relative to what the expectations were there. If you put me in a context of like deliver a front end for a product, I could be successful there. But if you asked me any of the core background knowledge, engineering things, I would have been quiet and confused because i just didn't have the vocabulary i didn't know the stuff so my first year there i spent from like 6ish a.m. to about 8 or 9 a.m. every single day studying uh, there's a, an algorithms book called clrs it's called uh, introduction to algorithms and i just studied it i just like woke up every morning drank coffee and like learned what i was missing and it was a super virtuous cycle because every day i would learn something new in the morning and then i would go to the office and i would hear someone talking about Oh, we can't use that solution because that's going to be uh, exponential complexity and the the system won't handle it. We need something that's going to be linear. Like I started to have the vocabulary to know what the hell they were talking about. And across the first year, I didn't know this, but I almost got fired. I I got put on... uh, My first performance review at Facebook was subpar. I was a junior engineer who wasn't meeting expectations. And nobody told me, oh, by the way, you could get fired for this. My boss was just a jerk, and he just said, oh yeah, you just didn't really meet, but you know, like, it's hard to say, you've only been here so long, so it's hard to, you know. If I could fast forward a few years, I would know that that guy did me a massive disservice, because what he should have said is, you have to get better, or you were going to get fired. But he didn't, which is risky for me, and it's luck that I found the right environment within the company for me to pull myself forward. So across the first couple years, I managed to get promoted, and then promoted again, and like... I became competent. I, I sort of fought my way up to competence.
0: And you worked on several key things like a uh, timeline product and a couple of other initiatives like the security-related matters. Do you want to share a little bit more about sort of the, the good accomplishments? Yeah. Being that you just barely scraped by in the first freshman year, I guess. Yeah. My, my first my first team was infrastructure. And I went to it because
1: it's what I didn't know, but I didn't factor in how how not knowing something might make me not good at it. You know, When I look back, and in hindsight, that's just an obvious thing to say, but I was drawn to what I didn't know. It's how I had been successful in my life so far. But that's also the team that I really flopped around and didn't do good work on. But I found my way into the timeline team because they were short-staffed and they were trying to ship this crazy new thing. They were getting rid of the wall and it was going to become a timeline, which now is just Facebook to most people, but there there was a thing before that. Um, and so I started working on Saturdays. I would come in on Saturdays and work on timeline. and because it was front-end, it was building a product, it was my, my wheelhouse, it was things I knew well, and I started to do good work. And before long, the timeline engineering team asked me to be full-time on timeline. They were like, can you just work on this? And so I did. You know, I sort of became, became an, a front-end engineer there. I did uh, a little bit of working groups and a little bit of work in uh, Facebook messages, but then really where I became a, a proper front-end engineer at Facebook was working on timeline.
0: And then the other things that you worked on there were critical for the, the, just the good experience of people you know, and the safe experience of people. Oh, that's maybe, true. maybe you can share a little bit of what, what it's like to not just to develop according to some, some standard that other people are giving to you, but to also take into consideration how people are misbehaving and, and, and how to incorporate that into product development.
1: Yeah, so the, the, the thing you're referring to is, after I came to London and was part of the, the landing team helping build the London engineering team up, I, uh, I switched teams into the security team. Uh, it's called Site Integrity, actually. And it was the first time I got to deal with the, the, the dark side of Facebook. You know, Before it was all you know cat videos and people sharing baby photos and pictures of food. And then in Site Integrity, it's all spammers and scammers and people who are trying to do bad things to people on Facebook. And to me, shockingly, It was so much more meaningful. I got to work in protecting people from the badness. And I also got to understand how rich and bad the internet really is. So like one of the things that I worked on when I first joined the team is a problem called uh, sextortion. Effectively, it's a phenomenon not specific to Facebook. It's across the entire internet. Every, Every web service that has any amount of identity has this problem where somebody talks to somebody that they think they can trust and it turns out they can't, but they don't know that. And they don't know that for a long time and during the period of naivety they give the person some sort of resource of a sexual nature maybe it's a photo maybe it's a video maybe they have like a Skype conversation and it's them doing things their mother would be ashamed of them for and as soon as the person that they think they can trust has the resource that person attacks them Uh, usually it's for money most commonly it's financial sextortion and that's a bad actor trying to get money out of the person, but there are many other kinds that only get worse from there like if you're going to get sextorted, you want to be financially sex torted so yeah, I tackled this problem and like tried to build mechanisms within the sort of infrastructure of Facebook to make it so that people couldn't do this to other people uh, and the cool part is they're really sort of for the attacker they're common behavioral indicators that you can you can write code to defend against and that was a really interesting challenge it was both rewarding because. I'm helping people not get screwed over. But also it's like, take something that I typically think of as like making it more open and more easy for people to connect. But then actually you need a layer in there that actually is resistance to that, that fights against people being open and and sharing and connecting. Mm.
0: So, yeah, I mean, you definitely tackled a lot of things, both in how we consume information and being protected from that. And with the background that you had with several startups that were, you know, all over the place there must have been a, sort of a compendium of lessons learned that Jackson would imp- impart onto junior engineers that might resemble you 10, 15 years ago. And we were talking about this earlier about the three things that you would use to refine and summarize those learnings. And the first thing that you mentioned was about pushing the boundary of where things can go. Walk us through how how would you... Structure that. How would you educate somebody on knowing when is too far and when's not enough?
1: Yeah, I think I think I made
0: the I made the mistake of
1: going too far at times, and I've made the mistake of not going anywhere at times. But the the sort of the Cliff's Notes version, the, the abbreviated version, is basically: if you're coming to a company, if you're joining a team, you have this wonderful opportunity to be a mirror for that team of what they're doing wrong, of how they could be better. You're bringing in new insights, and if you don't push for what you see could be improved when you're new, for one, you won't establish the reputation as somebody who can impart change, but also you will waste your vision. You will, you will waste your chance to show them something they don't already know. And like a, for instance of this is when I joined Facebook, they didn't have an MVC based web stack. It was literally like a pile of PHP files that just when you go into home.php, you're literally loading the home.php file on a server somewhere. And anybody who's done any PHP based web development in like the last decade knows that you've got Codeigniter, you've got CakePHP, you've got Symfony, you've got uh, Kohana, you've got all of these, you've got Yi, you've got a million frameworks that all use this MVC pattern. Because it's just really, really coherent for web development. And when I came to Facebook, I knew that what they were doing was like the ancient, horrible way to do it. And I I went to my boss and said, hey boss, like, it's nuts that we're doing this. Like, if you give me a week, I can write the most bare bones skeleton MVC framework that will make it so much easier to write our front ends. And he looked me dead in the face and said, no, we're not going to do that. It will never scale. That was my chance. That was my chance to impart my to sort of push things forward. And I missed it because I got shut down and I stopped. I gave up. So fast forward a few months, I found out that two very senior engineers were doing exactly this. Two super senior, awesome engineers were building an MVC web stack. And later on at Facebook, I actually worked on the stack and contributed to it, but I was there. I was in that moment of like innovative potential and I backed down because of resistance. So it's bad culture that somebody told me, no because, rather than yes if. But it's also me, I failed. I failed to take the opportunity to push
0: things forward when I had a chance to see it from the outside. You can only do that according to the speed that infrastructure allows you to do. You know, Infrastructure will either create a sprint or a crawl moment for you. Walk us through how you discern that. Mm, yeah, okay, so I can tell you a crawl
1: moment and then a sprint moment. Yeah. So a crawl moment takes me back to Echo Music. So two companies ago, at Echo Music, we were trying to do front end stuff, build new product experiences for major artists that weren't enabled by the tools that we had. And so we were fighting against the tools constantly. Our sort of weak infrastructure made it so that we had to do crazy things just to like render a table of results from a database. Now you might think that sounds insane, and it totally was, but like, the fact that there wasn't good infrastructure in place meant that we had to do every crazy hack there was, and work twice as hard to do basic things. And the, the big miss here is not just that it's hard to do work. The big miss is that you don't ever get to do your potential. You never get to explore the upper bound of what you're capable of because you spend all of your time trying to make the, the basic things happen. Uh, by contrast, if you go to Facebook, One thing Facebook has done an amazingly good job of is, actually it's in the same vein, it's abstracting away different data storage mechanisms. So for instance, if you're writing a new product at Facebook, you don't have to think, okay, what sort of database am I putting this in? Okay, what sort of caching mechanism am I using for that? If I want to make this scale, I know that I need to have some sort of database to cache, write, pass-through system, how do I put that together? Facebook has done an incredibly good job of writing not just database and data storage abstraction mechanisms but in product apis that let you just write the product that you want to write and the database layer is taken care of because the infrastructure is really good for Mm. doing high-scale data storage and data uh, retrieval so because of that you'll see facebook doing insanely fast prototyping insanely fast iteration on ideas and then abandoning them because they have the infrastructure to do that now a lot of other companies especially startups They would only have one shot at this, you know, they would have the chance to do it right one time because it's just so much work to build a product on weak infrastructure where Facebook can iterate and fail, iterate and fail, iterate and fail over and over again until they find exactly the right
0: product experience. If we go with that line of thought around startups and having that one chance of, of success or failure because of the infrastructure they're building, what are the other mistakes that you see them commit? I mean, you've, you've spent some time over the last few months working with startups of all sorts. And, you know, we we talked about some of those meetings and some of them included everything from having the wrong mindset around what role technology should have within the companies. And then other things are probably more regarding not understanding the importance of laying that groundwork early. Maybe you can Walk us through some of those anecdotes, anonymized, about uh, what those companies yeah. and founders you see doing time and time again. Definitely. So one super common thing I've seen,
1: um, talking to a bunch of companies. So for, for context, you know, I'm uh, I'm out of Facebook now, and I'm looking around at companies, and I'm I'm interviewing with companies, and you know, they're interviewing me, but I'm also interviewing them back. And yeah, there's a few really common patterns. The one that I find most troubling is a non-technical founder outsourcing their core technology work to cheap developers somewhere in the world. You know, maybe that's Lithuania or maybe that's India or maybe it's Romania or Ukraine or someplace where you can get developers cheaper. This is so dangerous. I mean I understand it. Like talking with the founders, I totally get it. That you know they have their cash strapped, they have a vision, they just need technical people to help them achieve it. That rationale I buy. Like I get it. but what they don't see is that when you start from bad infrastructure, it is so, so, so hard to claw your way back. You know, you you'll get Maybe you do get traction. Let's say you are successful and you get a second round of funding and now you want to do the real work. Well, the first thing you have to do is destroy everything that you've built and start from the ground up if you're serious about it. And I can give you some for instances from my own career of how this plays out. Facebook Messenger. I was there at, at Facebook when Facebook Messenger was written in Erlang, which for the coders out there, it's a pretty obscure language compared to most of the mainstream languages. And it was good. It was really fast and, and high scale and everybody was happy with it, except that nobody at Facebook knew Erlang. It's sufficiently obscure that there are very few experts of it in technical companies. And so nobody worked on it. It was just sitting there. And you know, you can replace Erlang in Messenger for ASP.net in your startup code Code that you outsource to some place or you can replace Erlang with you know the, the crappy compiled together from five different contractors hairball of code that you're you know sort of demoing to get funding whatever it's, it's the same problem like a big pile of code nobody wants to touch So Facebook eventually had to face the fact they were getting beaten by other messaging platforms because they weren't iterating on messenger at all they weren't trying to make it better so what did they do well they had to rewrite it from the ground up well Facebook is a high-scale company and you can't just rewrite things from the ground up trivially so they chose a different language to write in they chose uh, java as the back end and then they chose a new at the time database system called HBase well it turned out HBase had laws. HBase had, had scale troubles. So it ended up taking more than a year just to get back to the place that they started, just to get back to, oh, hey, we have a consistently working messenger platform. And in that year, you saw all sorts of messaging startups come in and steal market share from Facebook. And so that's at the scale of Facebook. If you're a team of three people and you're a a, a non-technical founder and you're farming out your work somewhere, when you have to rewrite your product, it's going to cost you just as much time probably, but you have way less other stuff to buoy you. You know, Facebook had Timeline, it had all of the other features of Facebook to make it a compelling product and keep the users. But in the time that you're stagnant, trying to rewrite your hairball to something that you actually want people to to use and that you'll actually be able to hire engineers to work on, well, you got a hard road to hoe there. And good luck trying to hire engineers when you say, oh, hey, I've got this nasty, horrible pile of code that a bunch of different people have worked on that I've been paying pennies to. We really want someone to come in and be technical leadership for this.
0: Most coders I know are going to go, no, 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 no. I'm not here to pay down your technical debt. Definitely something to consider. Well, we always like to wrap up with at least one fun question. And today's fun question is, what's something you'd used to be strongly passionate about or something you used to strongly believe that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about?
1: Oh, this is a good question. This is really tough. I definitely think that I I used to believe in the myth of the the world-dominating 10x mega engineer and sort of this hero worship of, like, insane, game-changing technical leadership. And I think there are people, I've met people, especially in my time at Facebook, who, like, who, you know, they were born better engineers than I will ever be. You know, they are twice as productive or three times as productive as me. However, of those people, I know only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of them who don't also have some sort of horrible character flaw. I can think instantly of two people who were amazingly good technical engineers who just blow it out of the water as technical engineers, who were literally toxic to the teams that they were on, who nobody could stand to be around. And then the people that we point at and say, oh, that's a 10X engineer. And you think, yeah, but only because this is the only thing that they can do you know this is they can only do technical work and if you need leadership if you need to scale your team this person is never going to become a leader they're only ever going to be a liability outside of the one thing that they're amazing at and there are at least in my experience at facebook maybe two or three people who are exceptional to this people who are both amazingly good super high productivity engineers who are also good leaders but overall it's a myth. overall we and I, I'm totally guilty of buying into the, the 10x engineer myth. And now I recognize that what you need are like well-rounded, good people who can like nurture a team and create the right environment for, for everyone to buy in. And when everyone has buy-in and wants to do their best possible work, everybody becomes more than a 1x engineer. Excellent. And this is a bonus question. Ooh. How about hiring? So, okay, yeah. So this is one I, I feel particularly passionate about because in my time at Facebook London, I, I did something like 500 interviews. I feel like I interviewed half of the engineers in Europe. I think most startups get this wrong and it's it's sad it's like frustrating you know on, on one extreme you have these super structured like Google or Facebook or Amazon type of in, uh, engineering interview where you source tons of candidates you filter those those down by like a phone conversation with a recruiter and then you filter them down from there with a technical screen with an engineer and you filter them down from there with in-person interviews you know typically they divided up with like a, a coding interview or two a sort of architecture design interview a behavioral background interview and then you sort of make a decision from there that's that's one extreme. Hmm. And then the other extreme I've seen, especially among startups, is like just looking for insane, outrageous passion and like core technical ability overall. That's the sort of more qualitative, like, is this the right fit for our company? But across all of them, I feel like there's a big miss on the ability of the person to become a leader in the company over time. And if you're a startup your early hires are going to become your leaders. And even Facebook really, I think, missed the boat on this one. If I look back at the people who became management early Mm. on at Facebook, they were mostly very good individual contributor engineers Mm. who had no people skills whatsoever. Like, Facebook really struggled with its early management because they were people who were technical leaders who got forced into being people managers. And if they had just done a a better job of hiring more emotionally-rounded people, they would have grown in a much less rocky way with way less sort of, what do they call it, regrettable attrition. Mm. Um, And yeah, so I, I feel like if there's anything for companies to get good at, it's like asking harder questions about motivation, about collaboration in the interview to get a sense of like, will this person be a good contributor on the team? Not just are
0: they technically gifted and are they passionate about our space? Well, thanks for joining us, Jackson. That was amazing. Great hearing those stories and hopefully it'll help founders in in deciding some key decisions.
1: I hope so. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, guys. Bye.
1: See ya.